Good morning, everyone. Nice to be back with you in Orangefield today. We're going to read from God's Word. We're going to read some verses from Matthew chapter 26 and start at verse 57 and read a few verses and then the first two verses of Matthew chapter 27. This is God's Word. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? And then in chapter 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And ending there, the Lord will bless his truth to all our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. I have to say that it's, it's lovely to be back with you in Orangefield this morning, and I have to give such a resounding and deep uh, expression of my appreciation to your minister and pastor for the invitation to share this morning as part of this series leading up to Easter. We're talking about people around the cross. I mean, he could have given me Mary. He might have given me Peter. He could even have given me Pilate, but no, no, such is the nature and depth of his friendship with me that he gave me Caiaphas. Now, I don't know how much you know about the record and the scripture and the verses that we've just read, but I have to warn you at this point, this is probably going to be the most depressing sermon you have ever heard in your life, and it's not my fault, okay? So you can blame your pastor for that. Mind you, it's a sort of karma because when I was in Carn Money, I did exactly the same to my members of staff and that I gave them the things I didn't, want to, I didn't want to preach on either. So I kind of deserve it in a sort of way. So thanks, Gareth, for that. I really appreciate it. Caiaphas was the longest-serving high priest in New Testament times. He benefited from the fact that his father-in-law was deposed by the Roman authorities. Uh, his name was Annas, and he remained influential and popular but his son-in-law got to take over his place. And Caiaphas was up to his neck in the plot to kill Jesus. When the council 
was in almost total despair as to what to do about Jesus, whose ministry was now beginning to threaten the careful balance between the religious leadership in Jerusalem and Roman power. It was Caiaphas who spoke up and said in John 11 and 49, you know nothing at all, he said. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. This was the moment, John says, from which the Jewish religious leadership plotted to take Jesus' life. And so it was that after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was brought to the home of Caiaphas, where we read a moment or two ago, the teachers of the law and the elders had already assembled. And then in the account that you have in Matthew's gospel, okay, you'll, this trial is mentioned in all four of the gospels. The details are not always consistent. It's not entirely possible to know exactly the layout of what happened and when it happened. But in Matthew's gospel, it's really clear that there were two trials. One was in the early hours of the morning, and the other was just after daybreak. And the outcome of those two trials was that Jesus was condemned on the basis of blasphemy and transferred to the court of the Roman procurator because the council could not carry out the death penalty. That's the simple facts of what we read a moment or two ago. These simple facts, however, disguise the horror of what actually happened and Caiaphas' place in that horror story. I want to look at that a bit first of all before I try to draw out some thoughts and reflections on the story. And it means I'm going to have to examine the text a bit. Sorry about this. Okay, but try and take you through it and provide you with some idea of what the text is actually saying as opposed to what we might understand as we read it. If we look at the different things that happened, each of them is part of the horror. Let's look at the trial, for example in the evening and then in the next morning. The trial itself was illegal. From what we know of slightly later Pharisaic Jewish procedures, okay, which were probably there in Jesus' day, we can't be 100% certain about that, but what we know about those procedures is that the council was not allowed to meet at night to consider a capital charge. And this explains why there was two trials. The real one in the wee small hours of the morning and the official one at daybreak to rubber stamp what had already been illegally done during the night. The venue for the trial, the high priest's residence. Illegal. The council did not meet there. The council met in the chamber of the hewn stone in the temple itself. And the time and the place of the trial, the high priest's house in the early hours of the morning, probably excluded many of the 71 members of the council, almost certainly excluding people like Joseph from Arimathea and Nicodemus, who might have had a different opinion. The trial was a sham. It was legal. The witnesses... Whether the council sought out false witnesses, the, the text seems to suggest that. Mark says it slightly differently when he talks about this trial. Whether the council sought out false witnesses or whether the only ones they could find to testify against Jesus were liars is not entirely certain. The problem for the council was 
wherever they got these witnesses from, no two of them actually agreed. Not even the two who finally came forward with the accusation in Matthew 26 and 60. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Even their testimony didn't stand up to the honest scrutiny on the part of the council. There's one thing that this Jewish council was good at, it was asking awkward questions. And once they examined these witnesses, so-called, it wouldn't stand up. Not even the two they finally found who were more or less saying the same thing. Here's the thing. Each of the witnesses was found to be unreliable. In both Jewish and Roman law at the time, false witnesses in capital trials would themselves be put to death. You can understand why that was the law. You give testimony against someone in a capital charge, it could result in them being put to death. If the evidence you give is false, then that was why in contemporary law, if you did that, you would be put to death. No such proceeding took place in this trial. Then there were the proceedings themselves. They called the witnesses, couldn't get two to agree. And even when they got two to agree, when they examined them, it didn't stand up. And in a moment of despair, Caiaphas himself intervenes to challenge Jesus with a question. The high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Under contemporary Pharisaic rules, a court should never induce a person to incriminate themselves. It was against the law. But most of the priests and Caiaphas himself were Sadducees. And as people of privilege, they saw themselves as above the law. Then there was the verdict. First of all, we need to remember the verdict was already determined before the trial took place. Alfred Plummer, in his commentary on Matthew says this, quote, they had resolved that Jesus was to be put to death. The important thing now was to find a legal justification for doing so. Even to this day, things like that happen in religious courts. Jesus identifies with all those who have found themselves in this position throughout history. But the verdict itself was, according to the high priest, blasphemy. As soon as Jesus talks about, makes a quotation from the book of Daniel, and applies that quotation to himself, the high priest shouts out, this is, tears his clothes and shouts out, this is blasphemy. You all heard it, what's your verdict? Technically, Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy. The charge of blasphemy in contemporary Jewish law was really crystal clear. And it involved naming the name that no one spoke the name of God, that holy name that no Jew ever said. It involved naming that name and in some way disparaging that name. Jesus didn't do that. Technically, he was not guilty of blasphemy. If he'd been guilty of anything under current law, he probably would have been found guilty of insanity. The aftermath. What happened to Jesus after the court had finished is hard to read. Bound and blindfolded like some 21st century rendition at the hands of the CIA or our own government. 
they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Here's the thing. The mistreatment of prisoners was strictly prohibited in contemporary Pharisaic law. How did they dare? That's what actually was going on in these words that we read a moment or two ago. No single part of those events was worthy or honorable or upright or honest. No single part of it. So what are we to make of Caiaphas and his confrontation with Jesus? N.T. Wright, in his commentary, points out that Jesus and Caiaphas represent two worldviews, or to put it another way, they exemplify the life of two different kingdoms. How would we recognize in our lives whether we are with Caiaphas or with Jesus? Well, think about that for a moment. There are three things where the sharp contrast between Caiaphas and Jesus and between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are brought into sharp focus in the narrative. Let me suggest that there are these. The first one is this. Caiaphas was torn by multiple allegiances. Jesus had only one. To keep the life that he had become accustomed to, Caiaphas had to juggle so many competing loyalties. There was the Jewish mob that he had to keep under control if he was going to keep the Romans off his back. There were the interests of the wealthy Sadducean families in the priesthood of whom he was a part and whose concerns he needed to prioritize. There was the power of Rome that he needed to placate. It turns out he was good at it until he, like his predecessor, was ultimately removed from his post by Rome. He was constantly juggling with those allegiances and the pressures upon him. Like, would you want to be the director general of the BBC right now? You got Tory ministers breathing down your neck. You got most of your staff that won't work for you. You got a board that you're answerable to. And you've got all these pressures on you. What do you do? Who do you keep in with? How do you keep everyone sweet? That was exactly the situation that Caiaphas found himself in. Jesus' life was much simpler. And the guiding loyalty of Jesus' life is revealed in the only time that Jesus spoke to Caiaphas. For his trial, the two trials, he remained silent except once. And the only time that Jesus spoke is when we read the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Once his father is mentioned, Jesus responds. Only for that reason. Because the truth is, as we know, that some hours before this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, Jesus had renewed his one and only loyalty. In Matthew 26 and 39, it says, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will 
but as you will. One loyalty. He renewed it in Gethsemane. He testified to it in the trial, and it was the only thing he said. The kingdom of this world demands of us multiple loyalties. Often they are in conflict with one another. They drag us from one direction to the next till our heads are turned not knowing whom we should prioritize and who should come first. The kingdom of God provides us with only one. What does your life look like? Like a life of Caiaphas or like the life of Jesus? Two different kingdoms. And you can see it in the fact that Caiaphas was torn by multiple allegiances where Jesus had only one. And then you see it in the fact that Caiaphas was concerned with himself, Jesus with others. Caiaphas was trying really hard, as I've said, to keep everyone else sweet so that he would not lose his privileged position. I'm not saying that he didn't have some measure of concern for his people. I'm not saying that there weren't good things achieved during the course of his leadership, but the reality was what drove Caiaphas was his own position. He had married into religious power and influence, and in his case, that religious power and influence brought political influence too. He was a fixer, and he was good at it, perhaps even better than his father-in-law, Annas. I mean, think about it for a minute. I didn't mention that as a big pressure. You know, not only did he have all these other people breathing down his neck, but his father-in-law, who had been deposed by the Romans, was at least initially a lot more popular than he was. Like, who wants to have their father-in-law breathing down their neck? Okay, Who wants to have their father-in-law more popular than they are? That was tough enough in itself. But it looks like as if Caius was actually even better at his job than his father-in-law was because he lasted a lot longer. And in many ways, Caius' determination to see Jesus executed was purely and entirely to enhance his own position. How different it was with Jesus Just a few hours before these judicial proceedings, one of Jesus' disciples had drawn a sword to protect him from the violence of the temple guards and their hangers-on who had come to arrest him. Now, what you need to remember is Peter was a fisherman, not a soldier. If you'd given him a rod and line, he could have been dead accurate, but he had a sword in his hand and he was pretty useless with it. And all he succeeded in doing, which in itself, I guess, was probably traumatic enough for the person it happened to, but all he actually succeeded in doing was cutting off the ear of one of the high priest's servants, okay? And we read in Luke 22 and 51, and Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, we often pass over that, okay, because that's what Jesus did, wasn't it? People came to him in all kinds of conditions, And those who came to him in those conditions left in a different way to the way in which they had come. They received compassion. They received love. They experienced the power and mercy of God. What you have to remember is that the guy whose ear Peter cut off was not an innocent bystander caught up in crossfire. He was there to help the arrest and trial of Jesus. He was part of the plot to kill him, and Jesus healed him. 
kingdom of this world is the place where I come first. The kingdom of God is the place where others do. A sharp contrast between the lives of these two men in the courtroom that day. Caiaphas, he was all about propping up his own authority and taking care of himself. And Jesus, who just a few hours before this happened, healed a person who was there to try and put him to death. Caiaphas concerned with himself, Jesus with others. Which of those two kingdoms does my life look like? And then lastly, Caiaphas was a judge and Jesus was the judge. Caiaphas sat as Jesus' judge, but he couldn't pass sentence in his own right. There were 71 members of the council and when they met in their proper venue, they sat in a circle with Caiaphas in the middle And it was that way for a special reason. The reason being that the high priest certainly was the high priest. He alone could perform certain parts of the annual ritual and religious celebration of the people. No one else could do some of the things that he could do. But the one thing he could not do was decide on judgment. He had to have the approval of the council itself. So on this fateful night, he used his influence to gain a verdict from them which he could not give himself. We read, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. They answered, He got the answer he needed. He couldn't do it himself. He needed the approval of the council. Jesus, on the other hand, needed no additional verification of his authority. As you read the record, read the record of any of the trials. As we go up to Easter and we read, refresh our mind with those stories, there's one abiding Reflection that comes as you read those stories, whether it is Jewish religious power or whether it is Roman political and military power, read the stories and tell me who feels like they're actually in charge. Certainly not Caiaphas. He couldn't even get the verdict he needed from the witnesses they had called. And if Jesus had not opened his mouth, he would not have had grounds on which to convict him. And even with Pilate, Jesus said to him, you're not the person really to blame. You wouldn't have any authority if God didn't give it to you. The people who sent me here are more to blame than you are. Who was actually in charge? Jesus knew that years before this court adjourned, the prophet Daniel had spoken about that very moment. He says to the court, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It is almost a direct quotation from the prophecy of Daniel. Caiaphas was just one of many in a world full of judges. Jesus was the judge, the one before whom Caiaphas himself was being judged in the very activity that he was taking part in there and then. 
Remember what it says in one of the praise songs that we sing, he's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down, and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his phrase, for who can stop the Lord Almighty? The kingdoms of this world are full of courtrooms where humans judge, but the kingdom of God is where Jesus alone is the judge, and before him everyone will stand. In our lives, we have to judge. We hold positions of authority in family, in work, in areas where we have interests. We make decisions, quality judgments all the time, often about people. As we live like that, we need to remember that that is not our kingdom. Our kingdom is a kingdom where ultimately all of those decisions we make and all of those things that we do will be weighed and assessed by someone else who actually has the authority to make the final decision, not us. It should bring a humility. It should bring a sense of compassion to who we are and how we judge. Because one day, someone else will have to judge us. Two kingdoms in that courtroom that day. Two different kinds of life in the people, the two key characters who were there. Caiaphas, who was torn by multiple allegiances, trying to keep everyone else sweet, and Jesus, who had only one. Jesus, who knew that if that one allegiance was in place, everything else would fit in. Caiaphas, who was concerned with himself, propping up his own authority and keeping his own position. And Jesus, so concerned with others that he heals the hurt of someone who is there to take his life. Caiaphas was a judge. But Jesus is the judge. So as we think on that story, the guys come back to lead us into worship. As we think on that story, doesn't it pose for us that question? We look at our lives and our relationships with other people, who we have been in this week and who we will be in the week that lies in front of us. When you look at who we are and what we do and how we judge, which of those two kingdoms does our life actually look like? And maybe that's the reason why we need some prayer today. Because maybe we could be like that person totally distracted with earthly allegiance and forgetting that as believers, we really have only one. And if we get that one in the right place, then the others will fit. Or perhaps we need to have more compassion about how we have behaved towards others in the positions of authority that we hold, forgetting about the fact that somebody else is a higher authority than us, that there is a higher throne. May God grant us to reflect on that as we think about these two characters and the kingdoms they represent. Which kingdom does your life look like? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and love to us in sending Jesus, your Son. As we read this story, we are horrified at what he endured for our sake. Not just here, 
but in the other events that would take place in the hours that follow the courtroom scene we have been looking at. How did they dare? And yet, oh God, we see even in these people things from our own lives. Forgive us, our Father, for how we so get caught up with the world in which we live, its priorities and its allegiances. And grant us by your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to find out the simplicity of the life of Jesus, who knew only one allegiance, one final loyalty, and to which he gave himself heart and soul, body and mind. Send your Spirit now. Encourage us, Lord, where we have been making the right kingdom decisions and help us with those areas of our lives of which we need to repent and find new faith by your Spirit's work. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.